Good morning in Double Grace Church. My name is Wade and um, pastor alongside Pastor Tom and Pastor Jesse. And today we are going to, as we always should, uh, look at the Word of God. So we've been going through the book of First Thessalonians the past uh, couple months now, I think at least. And we're nearing the end. And um, today's passage is from First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Short and easy to memorize, um, and today we're going to pull the meaning out of this by the grace of God. So listen to the Word of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And if you just keep on looking at that, um, you'll memorize it by the end of this service. Three commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And let's look at this passage in the context of First Thessalonians. So like I said, um, Pastor Tom and I, we've been going through First Thessalonians, and Pastor Jesse will jump on um, next month. Uh, he'll cover a passage or two here. And to remind us, First Thessalonians was written to a young church in the first century that was faithfully carrying out its calling that God had given them. Uh, but there were questions in the church. It wasn't completely perfect. No church is completely perfect. But the questions that were asked in this church was, what is this second coming of Christ that, that I'm hearing about? What is this day of the Lord? What about my friends who have died? How do we process that? How do we, how do we grieve if we can grieve? And Paul, in this letter, he addresses their concerns. He tells them to hold on to the hope that you have. Live a life that honors God because there is an end to this because what you do right now matters. And the main theme of the book is the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. And this is something that has, that, that, that we see dotted throughout First Thessalonians. And the idea that is put in front of the Thessalonians and put in front of us as we look at the letter is this. Remember that Christ is coming. And remember that this is a hopeful thing. And it's also a sobering thing. We should be glad that this world and all the darkness and difficulty and discouragements and death is not all that there is. Christ will return and make all things right. And it means that how the Thessalonians and how we live our lives, this matters because the way that God has designed history is that nothing is wasted no moment is wasted. No person is wasted. And God will redeem all of it. And we as believers, as we look at this text, we can see where do we belong? What are we to do as we think of our place in God's story in history? And this is Paul's encouragement. In big ways, in small ways, be faithful. Remember that Christ is coming. Remember that you belong to God. This is Paul's encouragement to them. And we're looking at the close of the book, and there is actually another Second Thessalonians. This is not all that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. But we're looking at the end of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians now. And Tom, he preached through the previous verses in chapter 5, and they were um, instructions on how, how are we to regard the leaders of the church? How are we to regard each other in the church? And how are we to regard ourselves in the context, our attitude in the context of the church. 
And we're going to get into that in just a moment, but um, let me uh, pull out this kind of important aspect, which is whenever we look at the text, you have to remember the context, right? So First um, Thessalonians 5 was written not to individuals, but to a church. And everything that he writes to the Thessalonians, Paul puts in, in the words of Tom, y'all, y'all, this is for y'all, not just to you as individuals. So when we hear these verses, we might think, well, it means... This is a command for me to rejoice, a command for me to pray, a command for me to be grateful. And this is true, and this is good, but we have to remember that when Paul writes this, he's writing this in the context of community in the church. When we, whenever we read the letters, whenever we read the letters in the New Testament, almost always, almost always it's written to believers who belong to the church, not singular people, but to y'all. So as we look at these commands, think of it in, in terms of the plural. These are things that we should see in our individual lives, to be sure. But in this context, we should see these things in the church. We should see ourselves, we should see other people living out this rejoicing and this prayer and this gratitude. They're to be done publicly and collectively. These are things that we should be able to witness in each other. So... As I, as I talk about these commands, um, primarily I'm going to be talking about them in the context of community. Um, how do we as a church carry out these? But also, this applies to our own individual lives as well. So, um, because the culture and the makeup and the health of a church, that doesn't come from just a few people that are visible in the pulpit or in the, on the leadership team. It comes from how you live your life. It comes from how you think about what God is doing. This is what makes up the culture of Indelible Grace Church. It's not just me or Tom or the elders or Jesse. How you carry out this command, this will play into what we as a church are. So um, that's what I want to put in front of us. And now let's look at the text. Let's look at toward the end of the text first. Paul says... This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. Now, have you ever thought deeply about God's will for your life? And when you think about that, what comes to mind? You think, okay, this is where I should live. This is the will of God for me. The will of God for me is that I should marry this person, or the will of God for me is that I should take this job, or the will of God for me is that I should do X, Y, and Z in my community. And these are good questions, of course, that we need to put a lot of thought into. And we can pray about them. We should talk to other people about them. But did you know that the way that the Bible speaks about God's will for our life is never in those terms? You're never going to see in your Bible, okay, this is who you should be with. You're never going to see in the Bible, this is where you should live. The Bible doesn't talk about God's will for our lives in those terms. The who's and the what's and the when's of our lives are secondary to the why of our life. And which job you take is not nearly as important as whether or not you're making a priority in your life to delight in Jesus. And who you marry or who you're with is not nearly as important as what you're doing to cultivate the desires of your heart doesn't mean that those decisions are not super important, but there's something more important when we talk about the will of God. The Bible won't tell you what zip code to move into, or which person to pursue, or which car to drive. 
But the Bible is very clear about God's will for your life. And it's here in this text. God's will for your life is to rejoice. God's will for your life is to pray. God's will for your life is to be grateful. And this has implications for us as individuals, for us as members of this community. If you're a parent, God's will for your child is not an upper class, um, upper middle class upbringing. God's will for your child is to rejoice and to pray to God and to be thankful for God. So this is something I need to think about as a parent, and you do as well maybe. What is your goal for your child or for Indelible Grace Church? As we've been thinking about who we are as a church this past season, we're thinking about who's going to lead? Where are we going to be in five or ten years? But that is not God's ultimate will for our church. Our ultimate will, God's ultimate will for our church is not for us to have Pastor Jesse or Pastor Tom or Pastor Wade as the pastors. God's ultimate will for our church is not that we would have a building or that we would meet in a school. What God wants more than anything is that we would rejoice and that we would pray and that we would be grateful. These things, which sound so basic and they seem kind of small and insignificant, these are way more important than the things that we think of normally of God's will for our life. And so these verses have weight for us. What is the will of God? As we look at the three commands, we should think of them as commands, things that we must do. And here is the problem. As we talk about the will of God, um, do you know why they're the will of God, why we call it the will of God? It's because it's not our will. Left to ourselves, we do not want to rejoice. Left to ourselves, we do not want to pray. Left to ourselves, we do not want to give thanks to God. If it were that easy, it would be our own will, but it's not. These commands, these callings upon our life is so are, are so big that can only be it can only be God's will, not our own. And it means that it's strange and foreign for us to want to rejoice and pray and be grateful because it's not our natural bent. In our sinfulness, in our love for darkness and evil, we love independence. We love life apart from God. We love to sin. We want to avoid God rather than pray to him. And we don't want to acknowledge his goodness to us because we're afraid of being indebted to him. Um, gratitude is acknowledging your indebtedness to God. And we don't want that. And so these verses, they present a problem for us. To rejoice is actually not that easy. To pray is actually not that easy. To be grateful is actually not that easy. In fact, they're impossible. And that's why we need to look to God. We need to ask him to turn our hearts toward him. We need to be attentive and submit to what the Spirit is doing in our lives and in our church. Otherwise, it's impossible for us to carry out these commands. And 
In these coming moments, I want to focus on what these commands are and see why they're so impossible, um, what it would look like in our church and our lives, and at the end, we'll look at how it's possible. So um, kind of a lot. I'm going to try to keep it um, as brief as I can, uh, but still um, in a significant, meaningful way. So the first command is this, rejoice. Rejoice always. Think about what brings you joy. Certain experiences, certain foods, certain people, certain types of music. And that's awesome. And I think that God gives us these wonderful things so that we would be moved emotionally, so that we would delight, so that whatever synapses fire in our brains and whatever dopamine is released, these are gifts from God and we can be happy in them. We can delight in them. But when God says rejoice always, he's saying that there's more than that. It goes beyond that. The command in today's passage says nothing about good experiences. It's written actually to a church that's facing persecution. And how can they rejoice when they're suffering? How can they rejoice when they're being persecuted? The way that the Bible talks about joy and rejoicing, it's almost always in the context of suffering. A sample of the verses in the New Testament. Jesus speaking. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And this is Jesus speaking. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. It's in the context of suffering and persecution, Jesus says. Or in the book of James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Again, pay attention to the context of joy and rejoicing. Romans 5, Paul writing, we exult in our tribulations. Another word could be rejoice. We rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul, he says, actually, the circumstance in which your joy will grow, the circumstance in which we practice rejoicing, it's going to be in difficulty and hardship, We think of rejoicing as an expression of delight when things are good. But really, the way that the Bible orients us toward rejoicing is this. Rejoicing is this conscious, effortful decision to continue to hope in God in the middle of painful circumstances. Because you know that God is for you, because you know that God is good, because you know whatever you are experiencing is not the end of the story. And therefore, rejoice, rejoice. Psalm 149, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Another word for exult is rejoice. Let the godly rejoice in glory. Let them sing for joy on their bled, on their beds. God invites us to rejoice. Why? Because God takes pleasure in you. God delights in you. And this is one of the beautiful things about all world religions is which which other 
worldview or faith says that the God that created you delights in you, gets pleasure from you, sings over you, as far as I know, it's only our faith. Because God delights in you, you know that whatever circumstance you're going through, God is doing it to shape you. He's working things for your good because he loves you. And what makes it possible, what makes it possible for us to rejoice? Second Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is, prepare, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your afflictions are preparing you for something that is unimaginably good. Everything that we've gone through as a church it feels like suffering and affliction sometimes. And God says, that is exactly what I'm using to prepare you for something beyond anything that you can imagine. In the most difficult moments in our lives, it's in those circumstances that God is doing his deepest work in our life and in our church. Think of suffering. Think of, for the Thessalonians, persecution as a way that God, uh, as God's way of preparing your heart, shaping your heart so that you will be aware and attentive to God's work around you and the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And it's when you rejoice, when you take joy in all that God's doing, both pleasant and painful, that your heart is shaped into what God intends for you to be. We have a, a choice when difficult moments come. Will I grumble? Will I complain? Will I sulk? Or will I rejoice? Paul says, this is a command. It has to be the latter. That's what you need to choose. That's how God is going to shape you. By slowly turning your heart into something that is hardened and strengthened so that it is always oriented toward hope. That's how you rejoice. And the type of joy that God gives us is a deep joy that's rooted in the reality of suffering. It's not a happiness that comes when things go our way or when we deny suffering. Um, there's this great book. I think a lot of you guys have this book. It's called um, Every Moment Holy. And um, there's two two volumes right now. There's a third one coming out in a few weeks. But there is. Um, it's written by a guy named Douglas McKelvey. And um, this is a collection of, of prayers that... Um, sometimes we don't have the words to express what we want to say to God. And this, this author, he gives us some words. And this is a prayer that he writes about lament and sorrow and joy also. So listen to this. For joy that denies sorrow is neither hard won, nor true, nor eternal. It is not real joy at all. And sorrow that refuses to make space for the return of joy and hope in the end becomes nothing more than a temple for the worship of my own woundedness. So give me strength, O God, to feel this grief deeply, never to hide my heart from it, and give me also hope enough to remain open to surprising encounters with joy, as one on a woodland path might stumble suddenly into dapplings of golden light. Joy that denies sorrow is neither hard won nor true nor eternal. It is not real joy at all. And God, he's saying here, make 
your joy be real and deep and true and significant and weighty. Make this the type of joy that marks your life. Make this the type of joy that marks the life of the church. Because there's always going to be difficulty in our lives. And what will you choose? What will you choose? Choose a deep, real joy. So that's the first command. Rejoice always. Rejoice always meaning in every circumstance. And this is difficult because there's a whole lot of things I don't want to rejoice in. But God invites us. Rejoice in what I'm doing. Rejoice in what I'm doing in you. The second command is to pray. And the next couple of commands, I'm, I'm going to be, it's going to be a little bit shorter. Um, because the rejoicing, these things are a result of rejoicing. Um, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray always. And this is actually not the only place in the New Testament in which Paul pray, commands us to pray. Why is prayer so difficult for us? Why is it actually an impossible thing for us? Because left to ourselves, we don't want to depend on God. We want to trust ourselves. And what is the root of sin? The root of sin is pride. And what is pride fundamentally? Pride fundamentally at its essence, is trusting yourself more than you trust God. Pride is not this this um, very obvious expression of arrogance and boastfulness. Pride is, at our essence, trusting ourselves more than trusting God. And what prayer is, prayer is the space in which we recognize that actually, I can't trust myself. Actually, I don't have things under control. When Paul says, pray without ceasing, he says, in every circumstance, you need to know that I'm the only one that you can trust. Not your emotions, not your fleeting feelings, not what you can see with your own eyes, but only me. And prayer is a recognition that we need help. Prayer is an acknowledgement that it is only God who can help. It's us turning our hearts toward God and saying, just as I can't turn toward my own circumstances for joy, I can't turn to myself to make things right. And Paul says to the Thessalonian church, you look at God. Only God can do for you what needs to be done. Prayer is an act of humility. Prayer is an act of faith. And do we as a church pray? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. We have the prayer meeting on uh, Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. I encourage you guys to attend. Every Sunday there are several people that are praying for you and praying for each other and praying for the church, and um, I encourage you guys to go. But do we as a church, are we marked by prayer? And Paul says, let everything you do be marked by prayer because it's not just a religious ritual. Prayer is an act of humility that says, God, we can trust you only. That's the second command. The third command, give thanks. Give thanks. Gratitude is an acknowledgement that God is doing all things good and well. That all good things that we experience come from his hand. And that all the things that seem to be not good will actually be used by God for our good. This is what gratitude is. No one's grateful for a car accident or a flat tire in the moment. 
Because how can that be good? But if God were the were were, were the one making that happen, surely He can make good out of that. Surely we can thank God for all things in our lives, even when we can't see the end of it. Um, the the minister John Wesley, um, I think in the 18th century, um, he was one of the the men that God used mightily um, in the West to bring hundreds of thousands of people to Christ and um, had a huge long ministry. Um, before he was a belie- before he became a believer, he had a conversation with someone um, at his school, and he, he he was a little bit confused as to how he could be so joyful because this was a poor man that he didn't eat a whole lot. He didn't have a whole lot of food. He didn't have a whole lot of resources. He didn't have he only had one coat to carry him throughout the rest of the year. And yet he noticed something about this man, and he noticed that he was always full of joy and gratitude. And John Wesley, he asked him, why is it that you thank God when you have nothing to wear? When you're hungry, how can you thank God? When you have no bed to sleep on, why do you thank God? And what else is it that you thank God for? And this is what the man said to him, I thank him. I thank him that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. Here is a man who recognized what he truly needed was a new heart and a new desire for something beyond what he could experience simply on earth. And it's so hard for us to give thanks to God because we it's hard for us to discern what God is doing in this world This is why we see in Corinthians, there are certain things that are spoken to us, certain things that we hear, certain things that happen in the world that we cannot possibly know what's happening because God hasn't given us His Spirit yet. It's impossible to give thanks to God because we never see what God is doing unless He opens our eyes. And we see this in the Bible, Genesis 50, what you intended for evil this is what Joseph says to his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. All the evil, all the difficulty, all the darkness that we see, God intends it for good. And if we believe that that is God's heart toward us, how then should we respond? God, thank you for suffering. Thank you for the difficulties in my life. Thank you for all that we've gone through as a church. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I don't like the circumstances in front of me, but I trust the heart of my Father. I trust the heart of my Father. In 1997, I believe this was, um, there was a film, an Italian film that came out um, called A Beautiful Life. And this actually won, I believe it won um, the the award for Best Picture of the Year um, at the Academy Awards. And... Um, if you haven't seen it, I really encourage you to watch it because it's it's um kind of it's kind of a comedy that's set in a concentration camp. And um, how would that work? And this is how it works. In 1939, there we're introduced to this character. His name is Jessup. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. These are Italian names, um, Jessup. And he is um, he falls in love with a woman, and uh, he has a child. And of course, what happens in the early 40s, World War II, and 
he, this, this man and his family, they're sent to a concentration camp um, because they're Jews. The Nazis have rounded them up. And he knows that his responsibility as a father is to protect his child. And how do you protect a child in a concentration camp? How do you protect his innocence when people are being tortured and killed? And this, this man, he came up with an idea. This is, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is only fiction, by the way. Um, he, he tells his son, all right, we're going to enter, um, it's going to be a game. It's going to be a long game. Um, it's going to feel a little bit strange and weird. But if you follow all the rules of this game, at the end of it, you're going to win a prize. You're going to win a tank. And of course, his father, he's thinking the tanks are going to be the tanks of the Americans who come to rescue them in the concentration camp. And the story, uh, the, the, the whole movie is this man protecting his child by saying, the, these men that are they're mean, they're actually just players in this game. And your job is you're going to hide from them. You're going to listen to what they say. And if you listen to them, if you obey, if you don't, compl- if you don't complain, you're going to get more points. You're going to get more points. And throughout the story, this child, he trusts not the players in the game. He doesn't trust all the people committing these evil acts. What he does is he trusts the heart of his father. And he, the father's able to do it. His son, one of the final scenes of the movie is his son hiding in a box. And he knows that this is a five-year-old child and he needs to protect his child. And he pretends to be a woman and he, and he, he marches along with all the other prisoners and he distracts the guards because he knows if they're not distracted, they're going to find his son. And as he's distracting the guards, he's caught. And of course, this means a certain death for him. But he looks into the corner. He sees this, his, his son's eyes in a little slit in the box. And he smiles at his son. And he plays this role that he's been playing this entire time as his happy-go-lucky father who's just playing a game with his son. And he smiles at his son. His son smiles back, and his son has no idea that his father is going to his death. The last image of his father that this child has is of his father smiling, being happy. And of course, we as the viewers, we see him being led off by a guard. And the guard shoots him and kills him. But that's not the end of the story. Because the next scene is the Americans rolling into the concentration camp. And this little boy he sees a tank pull up, and in his mind he thinks, I've won the game. I've won the game because the tanks have come. The American soldier pulls the son into the tank, and he says, you want to ride? And he goes on a ride, and then the tank rolls through, um, rolls by all the prisoners that, that have been released from this concentration camp, and he sees his mother. And he jumps off the tank, and he tells his mother, 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 we've won, we've won. We've got the tank. We've won. All because his father loved him. All because his father protected him. All because throughout his time in the concentration camp, he trusted the heart of his father. And what does this say to us? Who is it that you trust? Because there's a whole lot of darkness and death and evil and sin around us. But it's the Father who ultimately has control over our lives. And he says to us, 
these things that you see with your eyes, this is not the final story. And I will protect you, I will be for you, I will be with you. And in the end, you will win. And isn't this what First Thessalonians is about? It's not ultimately about us winning. It's about the return of Christ. And one day our Father, our, our, our Father will, will, will be smiling upon us as the Son returns to be with His people. And we will say, we've won, we've won. I trust in my Father, and it made sense. And how is that possible? How is it that we can carry out the will of God, these impossible things of rejoicing in this world, of praying to God, of trusting Him, of giving thanks when there seems to be nothing to give thanks for? The final phrase of our passage This is the will of God for you in what? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. How is it that we can carry out these commands? It's only because the gospel is true. It's only because we are in Christ Jesus. The gospel says that Jesus came to this world because we were lost, because we rebelled against God, because we trusted ourselves instead of trusting God, because we deserved the penalty of death and wrath and the judgment of God. But Christ came to stand in our place. He was tortured and killed for our sake. He was stripped of everything. On the cross, Jesus was dehumanized and killed. Whatever seemed like he could rejoice in was gone. Before that, Jesus prayed, and did he get an answer? God stayed silent. God, remove this cup of wrath from me, if you can, if you will. And God did not. And God on the, Jesus on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God does not answer him. On the cross, Jesus, he bought us the opportunity to enjoy all things because it made possible the relationship that was broken between God and us. And now we are sons and daughters of this Father who we can trust, who we love. And we can rejoice because we know that God is always up to something good. It's not something that we're dependent on. It's not something that's dependent on what we can see. We can pray because even though on the cross God did not answer the prayer of Jesus, He answers our prayer. Jesus bought that right for us. We can pray, we can rejoice, because God has made all things work together for our good. What Satan intended for evil, God meant for our good. And let me just say this. It's really difficult for us sometimes to come to church and be told what we need to do. Because you really can't. I hear commands that tell me to love God with all my heart and to love other people with all my heart, and I don't. And you probably don't either. So what is our hope? What is our hope? Do you even want to obey? Do you want to have a heart of rejoicing and prayer and gratitude? Um, Some of us probably don't want to do that. Or if you are in the boat of, I can't do that 
this is the good news for us. This is the good news because when God says this is the will of God for you, it's a command for you, and it's also a promise to you. He doesn't say just say, you must rejoice, you must pray, you must be grateful. When we hear that something is a will of God for us, it means that is what will be true of us. You will rejoice. You will pray. You will be grateful. Not because you can try really hard to make those things true of you, but because His Spirit does His work in us. And what is our job in these moments? It's to submit, to repent of our sin, to submit to God. And how can we do that? It's because we know that He's good. His plans for your life are way better than your plans for your own life. And it's the gospel that tells us that this is true. So, Indelible Grace Church, rejoice. Be a church that rejoices in all things. Be a church that prays. Be a church that gives thanks to God. Because this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. This is the command of God for us in Christ Jesus. This is the promise to us that we will be a people of joy and prayer and gratitude. Will you pray with me? God, we are, when we look at these things, uh, we're humbled because these are not light commands that are just meant to make us feel good. They're impossible commands that are meant to make us feel hopeless unless the gospel is true. Unless Jesus is who he says he is. So I pray that you would turn our, our, our hearts toward that truth, that you would make it true of us, God. And may we rejoice, may we pray, may we give thanks to you in all circumstances. In the name of Jesus, who makes this possible. Amen.